Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Did you hear the explosion oh, from yes. your position? Yes, we did. As a matter of fact, we, we heard it. I was just like standing there pretty much looking out the window. I didn't see what caused it or if there was an impact. So you have no idea right, right oh, now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> Right? Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. Now it's obvious, I think, that there's a second plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. This has to be deliberate. I've never seen any... It looks like a movie. I saw a large plane, like a jet, go immediately headed directly into the World Trade Center. It, it, it just flew into it, into the, into the other tower coming from south to north. I watched the plane fly into the World Trade Center. What we have been fearing uh, for the longest time here apparently has come to pass. A disastrous terrorist attack. Ten years on from 9-11, we devote this week's programme to the aftermath of the terrorist attacks on the United States and the decade of global upheaval that followed. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. I'm joined in the studio by the editor of the Financial Times, Lionel Barber. Now, at the time of 9-11, Lionel was about to become US editor of the paper and he arrived in New York just five days after the attack. So, Lionel, what kind of a city did you find? An extraordinary couple of days in the weekend after 9-11. Uh, you could still taste the crushed glass and the dust as I went down near the site. It will always remain in my memory. And just devastation and people in total shock. And of course, Gideon, I returned on several occasions and then started work in the April. And people remained in that, traumatised for, I think, at least two years afterwards. It was, as you say, this incredible, vivid event, and everybody felt at the time the world's changed utterly. Now, 10 years on, I mean, so much has changed, but if you had to summarise it, America feels very different 10 years on. Do you think it's a diminished place? There's still the spirit of self-renewal. I think it's important to not exaggerate the degree of so-called decline. I mean, what's happened, of course, is that other countries have risen in importance. So you're talking about relative decline rather than absolute decline. I think the difference is that we've had a financial crash. I mean, the worst financial crisis in two generations, at least since the 1930s. The economy is still very, very fragile, a real estate bust after the boom. And at the same time, a country that's had its energy and resources sapped by this so-called war on terror launched by President Bush, tackling uh, radical Islamic terrorism around the globe, including two wars, one in Af Afghanistan and one in Iraq. Do you think, in retrospect, the war on terror was a mistake, or is it a more complicated assessment than that? I think it was utterly understandable that the United States, under President Bush, took military action in retaliation for the attacks of September the 11th. After all, they were attacks which went to the heart of the symbols of American power. Wall Street, the Pentagon, 
and many people believed that one of those other planes was due either for the White House, targeting the White House, or Capitol Hill. So this was understandable. It was a mistake to talk about the war on terror because inevitably action against terrorism is not a war. These are a combination of intelligence and police actions almost rather than a war. And can this war ever be won? How do you define the terms of victory? This is a struggle of a generation. It's a struggle of ideas, not just arms. Do you think, though, that maybe the last year has made us slightly reassess uh, how we view the war on terror? Because I think when President Bush left office, most people said you know, it was a series of, of catastrophic errors. But in the last year, we've seen finally the killing of Osama bin Laden and the Arab Spring. Does that affect your judgment on what the war on terror looks like? I think it's very important to remember that so far, thank goodness, there's been no other attack on American soil by radical Islamic terrorists. So in that sense, the war, the struggle, has been a success. The second point is that President Bush's diagnosis, intellectual diagnosis, saying that the autocratic regimes in the Middle East were, in effect, incubating radical Islam, has proven to be somewhat correct. So the failings of the so-called war on terror, more in terms of execution the diversion, for example, into Iraq. He was an old-style dictator, could have been contained, Saddam Hussein. And the second point, of course, is that President Bush and Condoleezza Rice, then Secretary of State, gave two very important speeches during his two administrations about the need for democracy in the Middle East. And that democracy, you're seeing those democratic impulses in the Arab Spring this year. Do you think we're coming to the end of a, of a decade that was, I think, in American foreign policy terms, defined by the war on terror? Has America finally shifted focus towards, say, the, the challenge of the rise of China? Or is it still something we're very much living through now? I think we're still living through the, this war on terror. What's interesting is President Obama has prosecuted that war through drone attacks against suspected terrorist camps in Pakistan to a higher degree than President Bush. And the Pentagon is still engaged in operations covert and overt around the globe in places like Niger, the Philippines, Yemen, all this is still underway. And, and also you have to bear in mind the establishment of, a, in effect, a second national security state uh, with the Homeland Security Department, etc. So there's an enormous amount of resources devoted to this war on terror. What's different, perhaps, is there's a greater understanding now that maybe they took their eye off the ball, the military planners in places like the Pacific, where China's influence is manifest. Lionel, thank you very much indeed. Now, as Lionel mentioned, the war on terror is still very much going on in the conflicts in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The FT's Matthew Green has visited a Pashtun community on the Afghan-Pakistan border. He describes what life is like for them and talks to Serena Tarling about the future of the region. Peshawar in northwest Pakistan is very much the gateway to the tribal areas which border Afghanistan, which form the heartland of the ethnic Pashtun community, which straddles both sides of the border. The city looks outwardly normal. There's lots of traffic clogging the streets. People are going about their business as usual. But it doesn't take long to realise that the threat here is very real. There's police checkpoints where officers with AK-47s stand under sunshades as they check 
drivers passing by, peering through the windshield to look at the identity of the passengers. Every major public building has heavy defences, particularly concrete barriers to stop potential suicide bomb attacks. And although things here look like they're bustling and that business is going on as usual, talk to anyone here and they'll say that there is a concern over security. All the security is for government people in Pakistan. Today you've been in Peshawar in the northwest of Pakistan. What's changed there for people since 9-11? Ten years ago, this was a region that had its problems for sure, but basically it was at peace. Today, it's in a state of low-level war. We've seen uh, the rise of an insurgency waged by Taliban militants on the Pakistan side of the border in the past few years who've launched a vicious campaign of retaliation against Pakistan's state. So really, the people here are trapped. They're caught between insurgents on one side and the military on the other. So it's a very uh, bleak picture in many parts of this region, and people certainly feel like They've been the forgotten victims, if you like, of the events unleashed by 9-11. What are their attitudes towards the US? Generally speaking, there's a lot of anger against the United States here in northwest Pakistan. A lot of people here see America's hand behind many of the problems that the region's facing at the moment. They, They blame the intervention in Afghanistan for pushing conflict across the border. And the suspicion often goes deeper than that. You can talk to some people and they'll say that it's the CIA who's blowing up bombs across Pakistan as part of an elaborate scheme to uh, try to seize the country's nuclear weapons. But the the people I spoke to today had had slightly more nuanced views. Uh, I spent some time with some students at the University of Peshawar uh, and they were, broadly speaking, in favor or at least impressed by the, the model that the United States presents against the, the policies that they've been implementing in the region. Um, so although there's a lot of uh, anti-American feeling here, there's also those who see things in a, a slightly more nuanced way. The use of the drone attacks by the U.S. has obviously been extremely controversial. What attitudes or impressions did you pick up from the students and other people that you spoke to about the drone attacks? Well, certainly several of the students were very much against the drone strikes. They said that they killed many civilians. Uh, and you can understand why people might feel aggrieved by the idea of this sort of armada of robots flying around the region, shooting missiles more or less at will, controlled by people thousands of miles away. So, of course, there, there is widespread uh, resentment and anger at drone strikes in much of Pakistan, as well as Peshawar. But I think it's also worth bearing in mind that if you get into conversations with some of the people who've been here for a while, who, who perhaps speak to the elders in the tribal areas, there's, there's sometimes a slightly more nuanced picture that emerges. The Taliban has many enemies within the tribal areas as well as beyond. And, and some of those people are actually rather relieved to see their enemies getting blown up from missile strikes. So although there's a great deal of opposition to the the campaign, it's not as black and white as as some people perhaps assume. How far is al-Qaeda still thought to be a threat in the region? Well, al-Qaeda is, of course, a very loaded term here. It means different things to different people in in Pakistan and elsewhere. What you can say for sure is that there's been the rise of a kind of homegrown insurgency, which has increasingly taken root in the tribal areas in recent years which has waged an effective campaign in many places against the military. That insurgency has been led by the Pakistan Taliban movement and and has claimed thousands of lives, certainly across the region and in other parts of Pakistan, through suicide bombings. It's perhaps fair to say that the tide has turned somewhat against the militants in the last few years. Pakistan's military 
has launched some effective campaigns. The number of sort of suicide bombings and other attacks in places like Peshawar has dropped off measurably in the last year or so. That's certainly not to say that the conflict is over, but certainly the military have mounted a pretty robust response after many years of dithering or, or appeasing the militants. And people in Peshawar, although they're still very worried about security, will tell you that they feel a bit better than they did a year or so ago. Still, the landscape for the people in this region is very different from what it was 10 years ago. What do you think are the future prospects of the Pashtun community in this region? Well, there's a great deal of concern over the future. I think what was striking about the conversations I had today was the sense of a lack of leadership. There are political parties, there are militant organisations, religious organisations, but there's not really an organisation that can really claim to speak for the Pashtun community as a whole. There's a great deal of disenchantment with uh, the political leadership and the traditional leadership, which for many years regulated conflicts in the region, has been decimated by a campaign of assassination of elders uh, waged by the Taliban. So as one analyst told me today, that the Pashtun of Pakistan feel as if they're in a rudderless ship. They're a community that's drifting, and they're very concerned about what the future may hold. That was Matthew Green talking to Serena Tarling. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Lionel Barber in the studio in London, to Matthew Green in Islamabad. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.